Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The difference, writes theologian Robert Jensen, the difference between a living person and a dead one is that the former can surprise you. A living person can surprise us. And think of other ways this applies. A living story, as opposed to a dead one, can still surprise us. The same with tradition. A living one is always revealing new dimensions of itself to us. A dead one is imprisoning. And the same with God. The living God, opposed to a dead God, can surprise you. And it's worth wondering if this gospel story and the God it shows can still surprise us. Rereading the parable of the prodigal son can be a little bit like watching an M. Night Shyamalan movie the second time. The twist is breathtaking the first time. The sixth sense in the story is the son's remarkable return. But after you hear it the first time, the punch can fall a little flat. The shock value isn't always there. Just say the opening line. There was a man who had two sons, and we know where this one is going. (laughs) The story has all the bland predictability of a biblical theme park. The awful relationship-shattering words, give me my share of the inheritance, leave us unruffled, because we can already hear the musicians tuning up for the joyful jig at the end. We are untroubled by the son's anguished confession before his father, because the aroma of the fatted calf roasting on the spit wafts over the narrative and covers up the stench of the pigsty. Fear not, the boy is coming home. He always does. The road back from the far country is paved and well-lit and well-traveled. It's not just that in some ways we come to expect his homecoming, to expect the happy ending, the second chance, the reunited family. It's also that we can anticipate the moral of the story like an Aesop fable that we've read countless times. Hey, no matter how badly you've messed up in life, Pick yourself up. A ready supply of forgiveness is waiting, and you can start over where you left off. The prodigal son becomes the comeback player of the year. We're a contestant in The Biggest Loser. We make it a saga of self-help and raise our glasses to second chances. We see the problem. Grace, the wild, surprising, abundant grace of the Father, becomes something of a presumption once you know the story. The boy had the party coming all along. It was his due. Luke, however, will have none of this. In fact, to preserve the shock of this parable, he wires up an electric fence just a little way back in chapter 12. The story of the rich fool is the mirror image of the prodigal son. Here, too, a brother demands his share of the inheritance, but this time the answer is no. 
Here, too, there's an economic emergency, but this time the crisis is not famine, but abundance. Again, there is a festive party of eating and drinking, but this time the guest of honor is not a bankrupt son being embraced by a generous father, but a rich fool who thinks he can throw a party for his own soul. Luke so badly wants us to see the pictures of undeserved grace in the prodigal son that he leaves negatives lying around as clues. In God's company, he practically shouts, in God's economy, rather, he practically shouts, you cannot throw your own party. When we treat the prodigal son as a comeback story, we miss the point. When we say, head home, God's feast is waiting, we misunderstand. It's not our remorse that forces God to set the banquet table. It is not our deep desire to start over again that leads God to roast the fatted calf. We cannot throw our own party. To feel the shocking surprise of this story, you've got to feel the son's unworthiness. He decides to come home. He does this not out of some fond sympathy or regard for his family name. The guy's broke, and he's out of options. We don't know exactly what the boy was thinking on his journey home, but we have a sense, because we've all been there. I remember being a senior in high school, storming out of the house one morning, telling my parents I was not taking my little sister to school because I had to pick up a couple of my cool friends. There was, to be sure, enough room in my car for my little sister, Mackenzie. But sorry, Mom. Sorry, Dad. I know you made me breakfast. I know you bought this car. Heck, you even brought me into the world and put a roof over my head. But it's not going to work out this morning. I sprinted out to my car, cranked the radio, checked my hair, threw the car in reverse. You know what I did? I slammed right into what was behind me, my father's car. (laughs) A crunching sound came from over my left shoulder, my bumper, his side door. I seriously considered fleeing the scene, (laughs) a little driveway hit and run, but I didn't like my chances. I had to run back in while my dad was showering and getting ready so that he could get my little sister to school on time and tell him. Have you been there before? (laughs) Have you been there? On the far side of worthiness. If the universe were indeed a just and moral place, if fairness ruled the day, you feel like you might as well be sent off to a labor camp in Siberia. (laughs) You have to be in the place of unworthiness if you're going to catch what happens in this story. I remember a class on this text in seminary where we learned from a scholar who had lived in the Middle East what would have awaited the son on his return journey. The community would enact a public shaming ritual known in the Talmud as the Kazaza. This was done to Jewish boys who had squandered their money among the Gentiles. The villagers would bring a large earthenware jar, fill it with burned nuts and burned corn, and break it in front of the guilty individual. And while doing this, the community would shout, so-and-so is cut off from the people. 
From that point on, the village would have nothing to do with the wayward lad. They would then line up, forming a gauntlet, arm themselves with sticks, and whip the one returning as he ran the gauntlet. In our story, something unforeseen happens. The father does the unthinkable in Jewish culture. He hikes up his robes and he runs. Running was totally not what old men did in this culture. It wasn't honorable. He runs, not giving two licks about his honor. And he doesn't let the boy receive the community's shame. In effect, he runs through the Kazaza ceremony. He runs the community's gauntlet, as if to take his son's shame upon himself. I'll take the shame, son. I'll take it. There's no way to anticipate this. This breaks every law of sanity and justice and fairness we shape our lives around. Well, if you want to know if there was a prodigal father in my story, I'll assure you there wasn't. (laughs) The story is more surprising than that, though. I bolted up to my room to sulk and punch my pillows when I heard a conversation going on downstairs. Sweetie, my dad said, let's go. We can worry about him later. Dad, let's just give him a ride. I heard some footsteps dashing up to my room. My sister swung my door open. Hey, idiot, she said with a grin on her face. The cool kids are leaving and want to know if you want to lift. Here's one of the time-honored truths about grace. It's always there for the taking. It's always lit up with a neon sign. And it often asks you to receive it from someone who might not count as qualified, like your little sister. In that moment, it's not about what you've done or left undone. It's about opening your hands to receive an unexpected gift, which might be as small as a ride to school, but might be significant enough to change you forever. Now, maybe my sister meant nothing by it, but maybe God was surprising me with a grace I couldn't anticipate. It's not about throwing your own party, says Luke 15, but about being surprised by the abundance of another. And therefore, and therefore this Lenten season, it's okay for us to reflect on our own sin, to reflect on our own waywardness, thinking about our own apathy and stinginess and slothful spirit, this doesn't have to be a downer exercise, as it's just a way of divesting ourselves of any presumptions of grace. This season is here only that we might come to Holy Week with a renewed ability to be surprised. Because God, the living God, is the one who can surprise us. His grace is always looking for us, always seeking us out. It might be as close as your next breath, as close as the next person you see, or as close as the bread and the wine, where he has been surprising people with his presence for a very, very long time.